On this week in Enterprise Tech, we know security monitoring is not easy, so we're going to take you through some of the common pitfalls there. Plus, patent trolls are all around us, and a new proposed bill actually is trying to make it harder for them, but it actually might weaken the effectiveness of your current patents. Plus, we bring in an enterprise technology expert. Brian Curtis and I talk with the managing director of Ridge Ventures, Alex Rosen. He has an eye for transformative technology. I'd like to hear some of the startups he's got. Should miss it. Twyatt on the set. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twyatt. This Week in Enterprise Tech, episode 365, recorded October 25th, 2019. Money Tech. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage. Thinking about moving your data storage to the cloud? Wasabi is enterprise class cloud storage at one fifth the price of Amazon S3 and up to six times faster with no hidden fees for egresses or API requests. Calculate your savings and try Wasabi with free unlimited storage for a month at wasabi.com. Code Enterprise. And by Microsoft Mechanics, the official show from Microsoft for tech enthusiasts, IT pros, and software architects. Get deep dives from engineers behind the tech or just learn the essentials of the latest from Microsoft. Visit aka.ms slash enterprise mechanics to watch and subscribe today. And by Beacon by Ecosec. Beacon is the fastest way to discover critical data online. This web-based platform gathers millions of posts from dark websites, pace sites, and discussion forums, allowing you to detect threats to your organization quickly. Book a demo today and claim a 10% discount by visiting ecosec.net slash enterprise. Welcome to Twyatt, this week in Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you, the enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world is connected. I'm your host, Louis Moreski, your guide through this big, giant world of the enterprise, but I definitely can't guide you by myself. I need to bring in the professionals, the experts. I like to stand on the shoulder of giants, starting with our very own Mr. Brian Chi, director of the Advanced Network Computer Laboratory in Honolulu. Chibert, you've been uh, you've been gallivanting amongst all of the uh, of Sin City there. What what's been going on there? Actually, I had a great time talking to a whole bunch of folks lining up wireless internet service providers at, at Wispapalooza. So I've got some interviews that I'm editing up, and I'm hoping to be able to share the video clips with the audience very soon. Uh, but right now, I am just hoping and praying I don't have nice big giant explosions because we have our every other year Soast Open House where we have about 8,000 kids learning what it is like to be an Earth or space scientist. Uh, so the explosion I talked about is a demonstration of what happens with a volcanic explosion. And so they drop bottles of liquid nitrogen into a big giant trash can of water and blow all different sizes of balls in the air to show how ejecta gets strewn around by volcanoes. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Chipper, for being here. We'll we'll make sure we won't take any cover if we hear any explosions, but great to see you. But also, it's always great to have another expert with our with, with our panel here. And then we have our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin, senior editor at Dark Reading. Curtis, you're gearing up for another Maker Fair in Orlando coming in November. Is that right? That's very true. We've got Maker Fair in about two weeks. As a matter of fact, uh, after Twyatt, we'll be heading over to the Maker Effects Makerspace to put together uh, packets 
for exhibitors. So uh, it, it's getting real and uh, it's going to be exciting. We have, I think, at last count, over 300 exhibitors coming in, as well as the largest gathering of heavyweight battle bots uh, other than the televised tournament. So uh, we're going to be having a good time, and um, I just can't wait. Well, it's always great to have you guys here, but we have a quite a big jam-packed show for you today of some enterprise goodness, and I'm quite excited about our guest today as well. First, we're going to talk you through some security monitoring, and we know it's not that easy. And in fact, on our twit.community site, there's always a ton of questions there about how to get how to actually do that better. So we're going to take you through the most common pitfalls in security monitoring. Plus, patent trolls are all around us, and a new bill is out there to make it harder for them. But it just might actually weaken the effectiveness of patents that you have as well. We'll get into that discussion. And today we have an expert in enterprise tech. He has an eye for transformative technology. It's almost as if he has a crystal ball hidden somewhere. The managing director of Ridge Ventures, Alex Rosen, he's here to take us through what's next in the market. But before we get to all that, there have been some interesting blips this week in the news and including tours back in the news. So let's go ahead and jump into this week's blips. Now, users and organizations around the world are looking for ways to get better privacy, but there's always a good amount of global of the global cup population who also wants uncensored internet as well. Now, in the past, at Twilight episodes, we've discussed about all the countries that don't have net neutrality, but there are actually a plenty of them that also censor content and sites that you browse as well. Now, imagine not being able to find the information you're looking for because your country is blocking the content. Now, for some, it's actually hard to imagine being in that situation. Well, the BBC is fighting back to ensure censorship is no longer a problem for their content. Now, countries including China, Iran, and Vietnam are among the few that block BBC content. Now, how is BBC going to prevent the networks from censoring them? Well, with Tor, of course. Short for the Onion Router, designed by the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, Tor is essential and attempts to hide a person, location, and identity by sending data across the Internet via graph route of nodes or volunteer PCs and computer servers as connection points. Now, with encryption applied to every hop between the nodes in the graph, it makes it hard for anyone to track activity between nodes. Now, people forget that users can visit normal websites anonymously over Tor, but it can also be used as part of a process of hidden hosts or hidden sites for hosts, which use the onion domain suffix instead of .com. Now, onion hosted services and sites take load off scarce exit nodes and preserve end and encryption and the self-authenticating domain name resists spoofing. Now, this is why the BBC will also be posting or mirroring their content to an Onion address as well. No longer will people or organizations from countries who censor content be able to block BBC content anymore because of the Tor network. There's actually no real way to tell what content a user is looking at with Tor, and that's a great advantage for them. Now, remember, if you want to keep your browser activity secret... Or you're just living in or traveling to a country who censors content. It might be time for you to take a look at the browser, Tor browser again. Well, in a job market where we keep talking about the fact that there's a critical shortage of security professionals, 40% of IT security pros are job hunting as job satisfaction drops. Security professionals are reporting lower levels of job satisfaction, a sign of trouble for an industry struggling with higher stress levels and lower work-life balance. Exabeam researchers polled 479 security professionals in six different nations across Europe and North America. 
And the results show that 71% of respondents are satisfied or very satisfied with their position in 2019, compared with 83% who said the same thing in 2018. 62% of respondents said that their jobs are stressful or very stressful, and 44% feel they lack work-life balance. Now, that could be why 40% of the respondents say that they are actively job-searching. More than half of those are motivated by poor compensation and unsupportive leadership, which is interesting given the median salary is between $75,000 and $100,000 and 53% other respondents report salary satisfaction, a number that's up from the 35% of last year. Now, in something interesting, more than 90% of the respondents are male, which is an increase from 2018 and proof of security's continuing gender gap. Now, in further proof of a diversity deficit, only 3% of respondents were African-American, 13% were Asian, and 9% were Latino or Hispanic. White people, well, we made up 65% of the total respondents. Well, folks, rant on. This story is about a bunch of Republicans storing, storming an ultra-secure SCIF, which stands for Special Compartmentalized Information Facility, and they had their cell phones blazing away. And I will say up front, I'm an ex-federal IT specialist, and you know what? One of the biggest security measures of a SCIF are 18-year-olds with M16s. And sadly, or better yet, they have orders on shoot to kill. Because when you start fussing around with the data in a SCIF, you are putting people at risk. SCIFs are where we deal with human intelligence. And when you start blazing away with cell phones, you have a very high probability of accidentally sharing with the world information about human intelligence, and that gets people killed. Anyway, so last week, Wednesday, Republican lawmakers committed a major breach of security guidelines when they carried cell phones as they tried to force their way into a secure room where a closed-door impeachment hearing with the Defense Department official was taking place. At least one House member, Representative Matt Getz of Florida, got inside the skiff in the basement of the House of Representatives. Despite strict rules, barring all electronics inside such closed-off areas, Getz openly tweeted, Breaking! I led over 30 of my colleagues into the skiff where Adam Schiff is holding secret impeachment depositions. Still inside. More details to come. So, my opinion. Regardless of their justification, skips are used to keep ultra-sensitive data away from our enemies. It is inside a skiff that human intelligence is discussed by cleared personnel that have a need to know. Leaks in such a facility can potentially get people killed and why guards at the front door typically have a shoot-to-kill order. So I want to know how these lawmakers feel they are above the law and how they feel about potentially getting some of our intelligence assets killed. They should be grateful the guards at the door didn't execute their orders. End rant. Well, folks, another week, another leak. This time it's involving the U.S. Department of Homeland Security with the leak of 175, 179 gigabytes of customer 
U.S. government and military records. Now, if there wasn't enough reasons to continue supporting researchers, especially security ones, because they find weaknesses before the bad guys do, here's one more to add to that stack. Now, this time, the VPN Mentors cybersecurity team found a database belonging to AutoClerk, which is a service owned by West Western Hotels and resource, resorts, groups, resorts Group. Now, AutoClerk is just a reservations management system used by resorts resorts uh, to manage bookings, revenue, loyalty programs, guest profiles, and payment processing. However, it looks to be look like one of the platforms connected to AutoClerk exposed in the breach is a contractor of the U.S. government that deals with travel arrangements. Now, VPN Mentor was able to view records relating to travel arrangements of government and military personnel, both past and future, who are connected to the U.S. government, military, and Department of Homeland Security. Now, how was the data leaked? Well, researchers essentially discovered an open Elasticsearch database through VPN Mentor's web mapping project. Now, it was possible to access the database, given it had no encryption or security barriers whatsoever, and perform searches to examine the records contained within. Now, hundreds of thousands of booking reservations for guests were available to view, and data including full names, dates of birth, home addresses, phone numbers, dates, travel, costs, some check-in times, room numbers, and mass credit card details were also exposed. What is the big danger here? Well, significant amounts of sensitive employee and military personnel data can now be in the public domain. Now, this gives invaluable insight into the operations and activities of the U.S. government and military personnel. Now, the national security implications for the U.S. government and military are wide-ranging and pretty serious. Now, this goes along with the common theme. Your network is only as good as your weakest link. And it seems AutoClerk was Homeland Securities. Well, this week at Gartner Symposium Expo, a new vision for security leadership was outlined. Uh, whenever executives gather, words like leadership and vision get thrown around a lot. Gartner Symposium IT Expo is no exception, but at a Monday morning conference session in Orlando, a Gartner analyst added specifics to the high-level vision around security and risk management. Tom Schultz, who's a distinguished vice president and analyst at Gartner, began by pointing out how security has become a board-level issue at successful companies. Now, he started with showing an example vision statement, moved to the kind of assessments required to understand the starting point of the exercise, and then talked through the next four steps. Find the gaps between where you are and where you need to be, prioritize changes and actions based on the specific needs of the organization, gain approval from all the stakeholders and the board, and then execute the plan. Now, in a move that some in the audience found unusual, Schultz warned against having the security team be accountable for data security. Instead, the business owner of the data should be responsible, he said, because that brings balance to the question of just how aggressive application plans should be. He also stressed that process is the wrong foundation for security. Principles are far more important than processes when building a defense. Now, as for what to defend, Schultz said that teams should give up on the idea of protecting IT infrastructure. That train has long since left the station and it doesn't scale. Instead, business outcomes are where it's at when it comes to knowing what deserves your attention and your protection. Well, I guess I'm kind of Debbie Downer today because this story is about hackers stealing crypto keys for NordVPN. And this is what the Ars Technica story says so far. 
Hackers breached a server used by popular virtual network provider NordVPN and stole encryption keys that could be used to mount decryption attacks on segments of its customer base. A log of the commands used in the attacks suggests that the hackers had root access, meaning they had almost unfettered control over the server and could read or modify just about any data stored on it. One of the three private keys leaked was used to secure a digital certificate that provided HTTPS encryption for NordVPN.com. The key wasn't set to expire until October 2018, some seven months after the March 2018 breach. Attackers could have used the compromised certificate to impersonate the NordVPN website or mount man-in-the-middle attacks on people visiting the real one. Details of the breach have been circulating online since at least May 2018. Based on the command log, another of the leaked secret keys appeared to secure a private certificate authority that NordVPN used to issue digital certificates. Those certificates might be used for other servers in the NordVPN's network or a variety of other sensitive purposes. The name of the third-party certificate suggests it could also have been used for many different sensitive purposes, including securing the server that were compromised in the breach. The revolution, revelations came as evidence surfaced suggesting that two rival VPN services, TorGuard and Viking VPN, also experienced breaches that leaked encryption keys. In a statement, TorGuard said a secret key for the transport layer certificate for TorGuardVPNAccess.com was stolen. The theft happened in, 20, in a 2017 server breach. The stolen data related to a squid proxy certificate. So my comment about this is ouch. So while these services are wonderful and I strongly encourage people to use VPNs, perhaps nervous organizations should consider using their own SSL VPN appliance. I use SonicWall, but that's not an endorsement. And hope their certificate authority isn't breached for that VPN appliances. Better yet, use a VPN appliance with MFA authentication. And we talk about it all the time here on Twit Network. What browser should you use or your organization be using to ensure security and privacy? Well, it might be time for you to take another look at Firefox. Now, with ad wars going on, Facebook creating better targeting ads with their tracking cookies and Twitter even retooling their ad targeting algorithms, marketers are embedding dozens of trackers per website to follow you online and your wanderings, building up an ad targeting pro profile. Now, while the, the dominant browser today is Google Chrome, it takes timid approach to these types of trackers. Now, Apple and now Mozilla are actually attacking them head on. In fact, Firefox first started blocking all trackers by default in its experimental browsers in July and a wide release in September. Now, since then, Firefox has blocked 450 billion tracking attempts. Now, if you break it down, that means that the calculation comes out to about 175 trackers per Firefox browser per day now well that's no um no there's no longer a wait here because firefox is actually rolling it out it's a new version of firefox called release 70 with a privacy protections dashboard screen in your settings that actually helps explain how these billions of trackers work and what firefox is doing about them now the new upgrades fit into the mission of making privacy and security easier to understand and act upon it for the majority of us who don't geek out on the subject. Now, with Firefox's 70, you can look under the hood to see how it blocks all the trackers in real time. You can access this information by clicking on a purple shield icon on the left side of the browser's URL address bar, which launches a pop-up summary window. Now, from there, I can actually click through and see a list of particular trackers on the page or click the access the privacy protections dashboard. Now, that this actually later the latter actually provides an overview of all the trackers that firefox has blocked over the past week and a breakdown by the tracker type 
Now, the interesting thing here is that Chrome came out against the third-party cookie blocking that both Firefox and Apple Safari have been developing. Now, Google's argument is that blocking cookies will encourage marketers to devise more insidious ways of tracking users, one method called fingerprinting. However, Firefox 70 also provides the option to turn off fingerprint blocking and fingerprinting as well. See, I bet you're now more interested in taking back your privacy from advertisers. Maybe it's time you take another look at Mozilla's Firefox. Well, folks, that does it for the blips. Next up, we have the bites. But before we get to the bites, we have to thank a really great sponsor of This Week in Enterprise Tech, and that's Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage. Now, I've used Wasabi. They are super awesome. If you're thinking, well, if I use, I already use cloud storage, and then the more I store in it, the more I access it, the more operations I perform on it, the more I get charged. Well, in this day and age, that's really the story for most cloud storage companies out there. In fact, most storage providers are actually competing by actually seeing how low they can go on their storage fees and ingress and egress fees. Well, Wasabi has a solution for you here. Now, from experience, I can tell you the, the cheaper you go on cloud storage systems, you also give up on sometimes performance and reliability as well. Well, Wasabi cloud, hot cloud storage as a way to fix all of these things from small personal projects all the way up to the large enterprise ones. Wasabi has figured it all out. Let's start with the cost. Listen to the cost. Pricing cost is $5.99 per terabyte per month. Now, that's pretty competitive in this market, if you ask me. Now, listen to this game changer, though. Unlimited free egress for your data. That's it. No charge for API calls. You don't pay for actually accessing your data now, check out what you're already paying for your cloud storage right now. I can tell you that not including the egress fees and API calls or those CRUD operations will substantially save you money on the cost of doing business. Now, you're probably already thinking, well, if they're cheaper, they must be slower, right? Well, that's not true. With Wasabi, they are able to tackle all of that. What they've actually developed a disruptive technology. and They found ways to pull raw performance out of the storage devices without actually compromising anything. They actually have a revolutionary process that lays data down on disks, disks sequentially as opposed to in blocks. Now, what happens? That means that Wasabi storage is 80% cheaper and six times faster than the competitors or the industry leaders out there. Now, are you and your organization worried about compliance? Uh, there's a lot of wind stuff going in the wind there. Well, Wasabi is HIPAA, FINRA, and CGIS compliant as well. Now, fast Cheap storage isn't worth much if your data isn't secure, right? Well, Wasabi has an answer. They, they offer a unique feature of immutable buckets that cannot be deleted or altered, protecting your valuable data from accidental or malicious destruction. See if you can find that on another service today. Well, they also offer 90-day rotating integrity checks and 11 nines, 11 of durability. Now, moving your on-premise IT setup to the cloud solution is one of the most critical business decisions you will make today. I promise you that. According to industry-leading market research firm Gartner, by 2025, 80% of enterprises will shut down their traditional data center versus 10% today. Wasabi is going to help ease the transition, have you feel confident in the move to the cloud. So get started today. Data storage is all that Wasabi does. They are experts. It's their passion. They believe in the world of rapidly escalating cloud storage needs. That progress actually depends on cloud storage being more like a utility with fast, affordable storage available and endless supply. I bet you want to go out and try this right now, right? Well, go build something or move some data to the cloud right now. They truly understand the needs of enterprises so they don't have things like egress fees. Calculate savings for yourself and start a free trial of unlimited storage for a month. Go to wasabi.com. 
click the free trial link and enter the code enterprise join the movement and migrate your data to the cloud with confidence go to wasabi.com and make sure to use the offer code enterprise we thank wasabi for their support of this week in enterprise tech well folks it's time for the bites we know that security monitoring is is really not easy in fact on our twit.community website forum we get questions all the time about it so Chibert is actually going to take us through some of the common pitfalls of security monitoring. Chibert? So this story comes to us from Dark Reading. And I'm going to read just the first couple of paragraphs and then we'll 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 discuss this. Because I'm, you know, part of this is a Chibert rant. I'm pretty sure Lou and uh, Kurt are probably going to rant too. But the reality is, is we're fighting a losing battle. And here are some of the issues. Quote, no matter how much we invest in defense and how many new solutions hit the market every year, we still face an onslaught of highly successful cyber attacks. Hackers are savvy and persistent, and our failure to keep pace is leading to a problem projected to eclipse $3 billion in losses, according to 2018 data. Particularly as the cyber arms race has ratcheted up over the years, the author has seen a fixation on technology and consistently poor investment in people and processes to operate it. We absolutely need the technology, but we can't forget or overstate the importance of humans working methodically to make it effective, especially for security monitoring. So here's some of the common pitfalls the author uh, decided to highlight. One of the big ones was inadequate resourcing. He kind of ranted on that. You Yes, unfortunately, AI isn't there yet. You know, even good old boys at IBM with Watson and things like that, you can't just let the technology take care of this. You're going to need some trained humans. And the sad part is, if you're an HR manager trying to find skilled security people, you're probably finding it very difficult. My suggestion to the corporations out there is work with your um, educational institutions. If the kids in the college don't have places to have practicum, um, all they're going to have is book learning. So my suggestion is help the kids get their feet wet, work with them, and use that as a golden opportunity to start codifying your procedures. If you don't already have a set of standard operating procedures on what to do, when to do it and who to call, um, you're already losing most of those battles. So work with the kids, work with, you know, the professionals, you know, hire a consultant maybe, you know, start throwing some resources at this because the automation isn't there yet. You're not going to have Jarvis. You're not going to have, you know, HAL 9000 going and say, oh, sir, there's been a breach. Um, no, you're going to have to have make make sure there's some humans there. The other things that they started um, say identifying is failure to identify and drive towards outcomes, standard operating procedures, work backwards. You know what do you what do you need to achieve? Are you having to do some GDPR reporting? Are you having to do some HIPAA reporting? Um, if you're working in federal government, is it FIS, FISMA, and so forth? Is it NISPOM? You need to know your outcomes as part of your operating procedures. So the other things is, you know, 
what are your resources? You know, have you really taken it, um, a good hard look at what your resources are, how you've set it up? Have you discussed with within your organization? Are you achieving your goals? And nowadays we're all in agreement, I hope, that the perimeter security model is dead. You need to at least start looking at zones. You need to start thinking about how that works. We're not going to be Home Depot where someone in the back office can you know, mistakenly plug in their kid's laptop and infect the whole company right down to the registers. You know, I'm not sure that's really, really what happened, but you know, hey, we need to talk about that. So <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to put Mr. Kurt on the hot seat next and say, hey, <clears throat> Mr. Kurt, <clears throat> what have you been hearing? You were recently um, attending Gartner Symposium and uh, I'm sure this topic was up there. Why don't you share a little bit of what you're seeing in the C-suite as far as policies go? Happy to do so. And, and we heard some of it in my blip uh, where we were talking about the, the vision that was laid out. Um, I think this is important because as the analysts were saying, it's about both effectiveness where you are now and the effectiveness that can scale. As they pointed out, if you have a focus on the infrastructure, in other words, protecting individual servers, individual routers, individual pieces of infrastructure, whatever they may be, as your, your organization and your network grows, if that's your focus, then you have to grow your security apace. And that really doesn't scale. You, you hit a point pretty soon where you, you just can't add security monitoring points quickly enough to maintain a level of, of monitoring and security. Instead, define what those outcomes are, especially the business outcomes. You know, it's one thing to say we need to protect this many servers. It's another thing to say we need to protect the ability to do secure transactions with our customers at a rate of so many per second. <clears throat> Once you, you define it that way, it becomes much easier to say, all right, as we scale, maybe we change our approach. Maybe we change the technology. And when it comes to things like the monitoring, figuring out what all of the signals mean when they're brought into the, the, the analysis pit, that's why we're seeing a growth in what a lot of companies are calling the virtual SOC uh, the SOC as a service. In other words, let's take all of those feeds, let's take all of that data and send it to a third-party provider in the cloud. Let them do the monitoring. Let them apply the intelligence that they've either developed or bought using the staff that they employ to figure out what's important, what you should know about, and what you should act upon immediately. They can notify you and let you take care of dealing with the issues, making the adjustments, but you don't have to worry about scaling your SOC headcount to take care of, of all the data that's coming in. You know, that, that's one of the things that we're seeing, this, this great growth of both automation and the continuation of outsourcing in certain key areas. 
are allowing even smaller organizations to, well, punch above their weight when it comes to dealing with security issues. And for a lot of the smaller organizations that are being increasingly targeted by criminals, that may be the best news all year. Okay, so, great. That's today. I'm going to ask Lou, what about tomorrow? What about the future? So, as an IT professional, we've all seen some of the really, really abysmal error codes that software has been throwing, systems have been throwing. You know, when we start having error code 00EEFA, okay, so what is that? With the resources available to us today with virtual systems and things like that, Lou, what do you think? Do you think it's now time or past time or whatever of getting developers to start using more natural language error codes to actually, you know, what through that error, why was the error thrown? Do you think developers can actually help some of this so that the people that are monitoring have a little bit more guidance? So, Lou, absolutely. What do you think? I think it's it's a little bit of combination of both. I think the reason for the error codes and the reason they continue to persist over the years is just because they don't need to be localized. They don't need to be um, internationalized uh, in the sense, and they can be pointed to specific things, you know, specific um, content over time. Uh, but it does make sense to offer a little bit more context into what's going on. Um, you know, I see a lot of organizations out there that build software that will get you know, issues from that software, whether it's node or it's whether it's end node protection or endpoint protection, or if it's just services within their system or it's containers or, you know, whatnot, um, you know, they don't necessarily know how to consume that data and know how to actually be alerted of that data. They're not taking advantage of some of the tools that are out there today. Um, and so I would say, almost say, yeah, I agree. Make sure that your appliances and your, you know, your software and your services are providing a little bit more context that could be captured at somewhere down the pipe, somewhere downstream. But also make sure you're taking advantage of some of those tools that are out there today. And, and we, we've talked a lot about it before in the past, but there's a lot of services out there. There's a lot of AI powered uh, services and security appliances that are out there that will actually help consume some of this data in, in you know, in, in a stream and actually try to try to provide you a little bit better insight into what's going on. And they do the work to actually go figure out what some error codes are doing or what they are to help provide a little bit more insights and to dedupe some of the issues that are coming in. And I almost to say that's the future. Um, I, I would definitely say that there's some big players out there, Cisco, Sonic, Wall, you've talked about it before, Meraki, um, that will apply some of this knowledge and the, some of this technology to these types of things. But you have to take advantage of it as well. You can't just go and say, hey, I'm going to put a little bit of tracing and logging into my software and in hopes that I'm going to capture everything. So I think the future is really having machines help us from that perspective. But also, again, like you said, providing a little bit more context into the data that we're providing. Yeah, so I'm actually thinking we've got a lot of work to do still. Uh, we're not keeping up, I think. Solutions like, say, we've interviewed Tim Titus from Past Solutions. We've uh, interviewed the guys from Splunk. Um, we've designed, we've interviewed all kinds of people with different types of solutions that are starting to apply AI to the, the problem. <clears throat> but I'm also saying, you know, this is my personal rant, is we need to train the warm bodies too. We're not going to get away from 
skilled labor anytime soon. So I'm going to put a call out to the industry professionals and say, if your organization isn't offering at least a, you know, a hand to educational institutions for some sort of public-private partnership, consider it. There are some tax advantages, so might as well make use of those because remember, our, the tax laws were designed to be treated aggressively. It behooves you to treat them aggressively. Use those loopholes so that you can go and start working with the public-private interface so that we can start training these kids, get them some real-world experience. Um, to the academics out there, your ivory tower is crumbling. If you are not looking at public-private partnerships, you're behind the times. Your grant money is disappearing. My grant money comes from a combination of public and private. You need to start thinking about it. The world is changing. It's time for the industry to change with it. End rant. Anyway, I'm thinking maybe just maybe we've, we're done with that rant. And maybe it's time for uh, Lou. Shall we go talk about patent challenges? Absolutely. Now, you and your organization, they, they might have applied for patents in the past and they were even given patents for your inventions. But so nothing else is a great place of mind for you to be protected by law. But what if I told you a new bill dubbed the Stronger Patents Law might just weaken the effectiveness of the patent system and your current patents? Now, we'll get, uh, get getting too much into the legalese of the bill because we don't have Denise Howe here to tell us about it. It targets the IPR system or the system of inter parte review. Now, the main reason for the IPR system has to was to actually stop the course of trending wrongly issued patents and chip away at the patent rules. Now, it essentially helps people and organizations challenge bad patents more cheaply and quickly. Now, IPR proceedings are taking a real bite out of the patent troll business model. Now, here in Twite, we talked about many situations in which patent trolls seek out to extort money from smaller developers and other innovators in the world. Now, to combat, to combat against the bill, the EFF has joined, was actually joined by unions, healthcare organizations, and consumer groups asking Congress to strengthen, not weaken, the IPR process. In fact, in the letter down, uh, drawn up by these groups actually calls out that the IPR process has saved more than $2 billion in deadweight losses that would have gone to legal fees to defend against patents that were weaponized against small businesses and even public agencies. In fact, in the example given by the EFF, and that might actually have relevance here on the Twit Networks as well, IPR was used by the nonprofit EFF to successfully challenge a patent that claimed to cover all forms of podcasting. The owner of the patent, Personal Audio LLC, was asserting this patent against individuals and small businesses for creating podcasts. By giving patent trolls the right to automatic injunction, this bill could give them the power to shut down startups and thousands of other productive companies. Now, I want to throw this to you guys because, Chibert, I want to start with you. Now, what do you think? Is this to... Uh, does this bill sound like it's more empowering to patent trolls? It seems like the major provision, which they call the Stronger Patents Act, would be a reverse to the Supreme Court's landmark eBay versus Merck exchange decision, which would be a huge step backwards because it would empower patent trolls. Now it sounds like we're getting there again with this new bill. What's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I I, I really couldn't say for sure, but all I can, all I'm willing to say is that the patent process needs to be revamped. Hear me, congressional delegations. 
you are the lawmakers. You need to work with the patent office because the patent process is broken when we can have patent trolls going after things like podcasting. Um, when we had people going after Vonage, even though the concept of voice over IP was proposed in a 1960s era DARPA project um, that I happened to be a student slave on. This is out of control. Uh, we need to protect our patent holders because of the, you know, they put a lot of effort into it. But patent trolls need to be squished. They're anti-productive. They are taking money away from people that are honestly earning it. Um, Congress, it's time for you to go and do something about this. End rant. <laughs> Thanks, Jibber. Now, I think the interest, Curtis, I want to actually get your thoughts on this too. Um, shouldn't there be a bill out there to strengthen patent system to help rid ourselves of patent trolls? What do we need to do here? What do we need to do to finally rid ourselves of the patent trolls? Well, I think one of the big things we need to do to rid ourselves of patent trolls is actually just properly fund the patent office. Uh, there are so many applications for patents these days, and many of them are so complex that the default is to issue the patent unless it is, is obviously uh, prior art or, or obviously problematic. So let's get many more patent examiners in the office. Let's get uh, make the process so that the patent applications can be properly examined and adjudicated before they go into effect. You know, it's fascinating to, to watch this because the idea of, of patents is good. The idea is that it provides an incentive for innovation. If you innovate, you are essentially granted a short-term uh, monopoly on that invention so that you can profit for it. You know, it, it funds the, uh, the, the work to, of invention. But at the same time, you allow everyone else to see the invention. Now, that's the difference between a patent and a trade secret. With a patent, you have to publish what, what you are, are patenting. Uh, the system though, was developed, was conceived when we were primarily inventing physical things. You know, patents covered physical things. And you had to generally uh, submit a patent model. In other words, you had to show that your invention worked. And today, it's possible to, to patent what amount to ideas. And that is, is where many of the problems come in. Um, I'm a big believer in the patent system. I, I think it has, on the whole, served society very well. But I think that we need to take a look at some of the details so that we can review the patents, make a determination of their validity, and either issue or reject them much more quickly. You know, this is not a particularly new problem. I remember back in the 80s, uh, the mid-1980s, uh, 
talking to someone from IBM, and they said then that it was IBM's position that it was essentially impossible to build a modern computer without infringing an IBM patent. And if you looked at the list of patents they had, they were quite right. What kept them from going out and, and stomping all of the, the rising microcomputer companies? Well, it was a combination of fear of antitrust action and the fact that they were uh, perfectly willing to license their technology, sometimes for, for a royalty and sometimes just through a cross-licensing thing. That was an enlightened kind of attitude that we need more of. But until we see more enlightened behavior and fewer trolls, we really need to get to work in hiring lots more examiners in the patent office. Thanks, Kurt. Well, I think we've done enough negative news stories for today. We should move on to the hopes and dreams of startups, which we'll discuss with our guests next. But before we do, we have to thank another great sponsor of this week in enterprise tech, and that's Microsoft Mechanics. Now, how are you actually keeping up in the latest technology from different companies? Now, I love the deep dives, the ones that tech kind of take you through all the details, but quickly and provide you a walkthrough which eat with easy demos. Now, Microsoft Mechanics is going to do this for you, actually. Now, every week they do a deep dive on the latest and greatest announcements from Microsoft. Not only do they touch on the trending IT topics, but they bring you step-by-step tutorials as well. Just recently, they actually did one on Windows Virtual Desktop. They also have ones for the large-scale Windows and Office deployments as well. Now you're speaking my language. These aren't your usual rambling how-to videos or off-the-cuff tech interviews. These are carefully crafted, verbally and visually appealing videos with demos and how it works graphical explanations. They aren't long, so you don't lose focus, normally around 15 minutes, and so they get, actually get to the point and they don't waste your time. Now, finding guides for tech, different types of technology is hard. You actually have to sometimes search for trends around the different categories of things, but... Now, I actually work for Microsoft, and even though I use Microsoft Mechanics, it uh, actually helps me get up on things. It bridge my abridged guide to finding things sometimes so I don't have to go search through the company. Now, you're not actually limited to just one area of tech with Microsoft Mechanics. Surface devices, uh, cloud or on-premise infrastructure improvements across Azure or Windows, database architectures, management admin tools, security and compliance controls, productivity innovation, and more across Microsoft's complete range of products and services and businesses. Now, if you're going to Microsoft Ignite this year in Orlando, it's actually happening here in November. It's coming up soon. I'm actually trying to get there. Tons of announcements going to go on there. Plus, the mechanics team will be presenting live every day with engineering and product leaders, including Mark Rusinovich, Aaron Chappell, Brad Anderson, Julia White, Robert Leffert, and more. So you can see the tech in action behind the scenes live. I hope to see you there. So whether you're a tech enthusiast, IT professional, or architect looking to stay up to date, visit aka.ms slash enterprise mechanics today and subscribe. That's aka.ms slash enterprise mechanics or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Watch Microsoft Mechanics, your free go-to source to discover the latest Microsoft tech. And we thank Microsoft tech and their, and their support for this week and enterprise tech. Well, folks, it's now my favorite part of the show. We get to bring in a guest to drop some knowledge on the Twyat Riot. And today we have managing director of Ridge Ventures, Alec Rosen. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. Thanks so much, Lou. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Now, you have quite the journey through tech uh, with a what you have a BS in electrical engineering and actually an economics degree from MIT. 
and an MBA from Stanford. But, you know, I actually want you to take us through your journey because our audience loves to hear origin stories. So can you maybe take us through your journey and how you ended up at IDG and then Ridge Ventures? Um, sure. Uh, so this is a uh, walk in the past for uh, those who like technology and remember the the early days. So um <laughs> to personal computers in 1981, uh, my high school had um, a row of Commodore Pets, um, and um, I was fascinated with the idea of programming um, and ended up uh, getting a part-time job at a local Apple dealer so I could get um, the one of the early versions of the Apple IIe when it came out. Um, and just again, uh, put this in perspective, it's kind of funny, um, um, I didn't have the money to get the memory upgrade from 64K to 128K. That's K. Um, so uh, that was uh, uh, that was fun. Um, I ended up um, making a little bit of money in, in high school writing code because back then not everybody in high school coded like they do now. Uh, went to MIT, um, studied electrical engineering, got interested in business, got a second degree um, in economics, actually paid for a good chunk of my uh, of my college by, uh, by writing code uh, during the summers and during the school year, um, and then wanted to get some business experience, um, had a short stint um, in investment banking, and then was fortunate to get a totally entry-level uh, job at a venture capital firm in you know mid 1990s thought it was going to be something that I do for a year or two while I figure out what I going to do with the rest of my life um, and it ended up sticking so here I am 24 years later um, I still uh, love investing in technology I love working with entrepreneurs um, so um, been a, a little bit of a circuitous route but in a way a lot of the things that I've done have sort of put me in a really good place to uh, be able to work with startups today. Fantastic. Now, so can you maybe take us through some of the sectors or some of the areas of technology that your particular company focuses on? Sure. So um, Ridge Ventures uh, has got an interesting history. We evolved out of a corporate venture fund called IDG Ventures. I'm sure you guys are familiar with IDG, the, the a tech media company. Um, and historically, we've done a mix of consumer and enterprise investing. Uh, what we decided to do a couple of years ago is to focus on our strength, which really has been in enterprise. So what we really like to do today is focus on um, early stage enterprise investing backing very particular kind of founder. So our sweet spot is um, application layer software, so SaaS applications generally, um, infrastructure software usually sold to um, developers or DevOps professionals, um, some data services. Uh, we invest early, typically the first institutional money that's coming in. Um, generally, just as the product um, has gotten developed and is beginning to get to market. Um, and then we tend to back founders who really have uh, brought a lot of deep domain expertise to the table. Fantastic. So maybe you could take us through the landscape because we know that you know, technology has been changing. It's changing quite rapidly. How has the world of um, ventures kind of changed over the years for you? Um, so it's really hard to answer these questions without sounding like a grumpy old man, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> it's okay. So when, 
When I started in venture in 1993, the definition of a mega fund was a fund that had more than $100 million. I feel a little bit like, you know, Dr. Evil, I kind of have to go like this. Um, the definition of a micro fund today is a fund that has less than $150 million. So the same fund that was considered a mega fund is now considered smaller than a micro fund. So the amount of capital that has gone into venture capital in the last 25 years is just incredible. I think the <clears throat> the stats are something like over $130 billion was invested in um, venture-backed startups last year alone. Now, a lot of that is not coming just from venture capital firms is coming from corporations that hedge funds and uh, sovereign wealth funds from around the world. Um, but this has become sort of a, you know, billion dollar game um, up from call it, you know, $10 million game um, when it, when it started. So the business has become much bigger, um, much more institutional, but at the same time, the, What's been fascinating and really enjoyable is that technology has really evolved in so many different ways that none of us could have foreseen, um, you know, in, in the early 90s, um, both on the consumer and the enterprise side. And it's pretty consistent that every kind of seven to eight years, there's another meaningful infrastructure shift. Um, whether that's going from mini computers to PCs to the internet to mobile or whether it's kind of the underlying structure of going from, you know, relational databases to NoSQL storage or computing paradigms when you're going from on-prem to cloud to VMs to Kubernetes to cloud uh, functions. So um, kind of the changes are nonstop, um, which keeps me on my toes and makes the job fun. Fantastic. Now, can you maybe take us through, I know that you've talked a little bit about the different sectors you could kind of get into, but what are you seeing some trends in some of the technologies? Obviously, that might be an obvious question, but I figured I'd ask because we covered some of this stuff even between in, in the beginning part of the show. But I'm always curious, what kind of trends are you seeing in technology and what's kind of flooding the market right now? Yeah, so I would say what we try to do when we when think about trends is not uh, just to look at trends, but look at those that are investable. And um, because there are some things that are happening that for, you know, one side or another um, just don't present kind of great investment opportunities for us. So um, I would say um, we think of it broadly um, in terms of vertical and horizontal opportunities. So in the vertical side, um, we believe that uh, the ubiquity of mobile devices and the constant push uh, for digital transformation has created opportunities in a number of verticals where historically technology has not been a big component of their businesses. And I'll mention a couple. So one of them has been groceries. Um, uh, generally, grocery stores, which run on thin margins, have not had the ability to invest a lot in technologies. But over the past few years, in many regards, fueled by the competition from uh, you know, Amazon, uh, among others, they've really been investing aggressively. So we've made a couple of investments in that area. One in particular that we're excited about is called Grabango. Uh, they provide technology to existing retail locations to enable them um, to provide cashierless checkout. So if you think of the Amazon Go analogy, this is the competitive response. And we think that um, 
majority of stores are going to have some component of cashierless checkout um, in the years to come. It's going to take a while. It's a combination of software and hardware, um, but it's definitely a major trend uh, that we're excited about and we're excited about funding. Um, I would say sort of on the horizontal side, there is, you know, as boring as it sounds, still this um, huge um, tidal wave pushing companies to the cloud. Um, last year was the first, actually this year is the first year where the traditional data center uh, spend um, has gone, has gotten eclipsed by the cloud spend, but that still means there is, you know, 50% um, of the overall spend that's still going to the traditional data center. So a lot more opportunities there. And that creates um, a lot of needs for um, horizontal tools um, to manage the software infrastructure. We made an early investment um, this year in a company called Refay, which helps um, developers um, and um, DevOps and ops people um, to manage uh, container applications across multiple um, environments. Um, and um, maybe one other sort of in the same kind of uh, horizontal opportunity um, as uh, companies face a lot of privacy and regulatory pressures around the world, this concept of data governance has really emerged as a pretty important issue for companies to tackle. So if you are multinational, you have um, customers in 10 different countries, how you keep data on each set of comp, uh, customers in that particular country is technically not easy to do. Um, and we found an entrepreneur whom we've backed previously um, to start a company um, called InCountry to provide software solutions for big enterprises as well as software companies to enable it to be compliant when it comes to data governance. I can go on and on. So, I mean, tell this me is great. No, this is great. I actually want to kind of touch on the reverse of it. So you, you talked a little bit about some of the uh, areas where they weren't less, they were less focused in the past, and now there are some kind of startups and some organizations coming out there to try to target these areas. But what I want to ask you is maybe what is kind of some gaps that you see that you're not actually seeing companies and startups actually focus on that need some attention that might even be some ideas for some of the audience that are watching the show that might even uh, have a chance because we have a lot of enterprise and IT professionals here uh, that might be one of focusing. So one area where I've continued to look for opportunities, and we funded one uh, this year, but I think there's probably an opportunity for a dozen, um, is in um, native mobile applications for the enterprise. If you if you you know look at your mobile device, um, you probably have you know 150 200 apps on there. How many of them are enterprise grade? How many of them? provide some functionality that enterprises need. I bet it's going to be one or two max, um, even if you are an employee of a large company. And um, we funded a company that is providing software for the deskless workforce. So these are um, engineers or maintenance professionals out on the field, typically walking around with uh, you know a piece of paper and a clipboard. Um, and there's an a the set of applications that replaces that. But I believe there are 
um, dozens of opportunities to build sort of um, mobile first native applications solving a variety of, you know, relatively boring um, enterprise needs. Uh, but most of the core enterprise applications today were developed 20 years ago. They're not they're not super mobile. Um, they're not mobile friendly. Uh, you know, maybe they have some kind of mobile extension, but um, that's a um, that to me is still a pretty um, significant area for um, for development. And be happy to fund people in that category. <laughs> Fantastic. When we come back, I do want to bring my co-hosts in crime back in because they do have some really great questions for you, especially about some emerging markets. But before we get to all that, we have to thank another great sponsor of This Week in Enterprise Tech, and that is Beacon by Ecosec. Now, sometimes discovering things about your network and infrastructure requires more than just the data from your network. Now, if you want to stay ahead of the game and actually be proactive rather than reactive, you need data that you don't actually have. Now, Ecosec has been the discovery tool for all social media, forums, and news, but they just now realize their newest product called Beacon is the product that will protect your information from the dark web intelligence as well. Now, Beacon actually helps you discover threats, learn about attackers and their motives, and prevent future attacks as well. Now, that's pretty cool. Now, this actually lets you be on the offense rather than on the defense right out of the gate. Now, within minutes, Beacon will show you a, a bunch of things. Leaked personally identifiable information. Now, in fact, one leaked email address can actually quickly lead you to a person's phone number, home address, information about their family, even their favorite movies. So this is great information to have before the attackers do. Now, they establish dark web information as well. In fact, fraudulent credit cards from there, guides on how to crack or hack specific companies and more before everyone else gets their hands on it. Now, large-scale data breach information as well, detecting these issues Early means you can inform your clients and stakeholders before they hear it on the news. And in fact, more information about cloud service vulnerabilities as well. Now, if your company uses any cloud service, be the first to know if those services have weak spots that can affect you and your organization. Now, Beacon allows anyone on your team to scan for threats quickly across Onion sites, Pace sites, and message boards without the need for Tor browser. Now, it's pretty sophisticated, yet simple to use. It actually parses the data before delivering it to you, so you and your team are not at risk of being exposed to any implicating image content. Now, global organizations trust Beacon to discover critical online threats and better protect their information and their people. Now, finding leaked data, information breaches, and our vulnerability early is really imperative for the safety and security of communities, individuals, and brands. Don't be left in the dark. Discover key data from hidden sources before they impact your organization. Book a demo today of Beacon and claim a 10% discount by visiting ecosec.net slash enterprise. That's ecosec.net slash enterprise to receive your exclusive 10% discount. And we thank ecosec for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, we're talking to Alex Rosen about some of the emerging markets out there and some really great ventures that he's had in the past. But I do want to bring my co-hosts in. Chubert, I want to throw this to you first because you have some in interesting questions about what's next. Actually, one of my big questions is we're, we've got an audience full of techies with lots of really great ideas. And I guess I would say venture capital has become very popularized because of uh, TV shows like Shark Tank, which I'm not sure is, if that's a dirty word for you or not. But if someone's got what they think is the next great idea, what kinds of homework should they be doing before they reach out to a venture capitalist? Good question. 
I would say it falls into two categories. One, you can do a little bit of, with very little research, you can identify the kind of companies that a particular venture firm backs, whether it's in terms of industries or stage of development. So if somebody is just starting off and it's literally one person an idea, then you're looking for firms that do seed or what is now called pre-seed investing. And unless that's one of the first two lines on the Venture Capitalist website, you're probably wasting your time with that firm. So get a really good sense for um, the kind of stage and then the kind of business. So if you're starting an e-commerce website and uh, you're looking at a venture um, at a uh, venture capital firm website and you see discussion of Kubernetes and uh, cybersecurity and CDNs, probably not a good fit, right? So that's one. And then secondly, generally speaking, most venture capitalists do not um, return cold emails. Um, so the um, an important homework to do would be try to identify if you have somebody in your network um, who is connected to a venture firm or several venture firms where they can make a warm introduction and, and at the very least vouch for for you for your background for your technical competence um, those are the two things that i would recommend to somebody who is uh, reaching out and is interested in obtaining venture funding one other thing that i'll say is that there are lots of great companies and lots of really important inventions where venture capital is not the right option for the founder or for the company. Um, and not every startup should get venture capital fi uh, financing because it's actually not the right answer for the entrepreneur. So it's also an important question to ask, like, why do you need venture capital financing? You do you really want to try to build this into a billion dollar company or do you have a really good idea and a you know nice mid-sized business you think you can build that is going to do something important for your customers, create some personal wealth for you, but not necessarily have the opportunity to get sold for, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Thanks, Chibri. I do want to throw uh, this over to Kurt as well, because you've had a lot of experience uh, interacting with VCs and startups. What kind of questions do you I'm have? I'm sorry to hear that, Kurt. <laughs> well, I, I have been uh, covering the industry for, for a long time. So I, I have seen a lot of the, the companies that are, spoken of in awed terms today, uh, go through the venture process. And that's really something I, I wanted to ask about. You know, you, you've talked about the way that the technology that you're seeing has changed over the years. Uh, we, we've watched uh, different fads ebb and flow. We've watched technology develop. I think one of my questions is whether you have seen the level of management quality and team quality that comes before you mature in the same way that the, the technology has changed. You know, we those of us who aren't in the Bay Area hear so much about the, the VC culture. Um, is it true that now everyone who lives, you know, north of Los Angeles um, has a pitch ready to go or are you still seeing people who are, are engineers or developers coming to you basically with the same kinds of management immaturity or issues that you were seeing a dozen or 15 years ago? 
There is no question that the num both the number of people and the sophistication of uh, entrepreneurs, um, either who are starting or who are repeat entrepreneurs, um, has grown. So um, that um, you know, the answer is a, it absolutely has changed. I think the the place where change is um, is twofold. I mean, the the amount of information that is readily available now to an entrepreneur about the startup environment, the startup culture, the fin- and finance just being a small part of that or a medium part of that um, is tremendous. I mean, I, you know, when I was interviewing for a job with a venture capital firm in 1993, um, that my best option was to go to Barnes & Noble store on the Upper West Side in Manhattan and look for a book of venture capital and there were two. And I picked out one and read that over the weekend and there was sort of a random pick and that was the only way I learned anything. Um, you know, today it's a, you know, five second Google search that will provide, you know, hundreds of hours of pretty valuable information from people who've gone this path before. So um, I think the level of sophistication is significantly different because of the information that's available. The level of sophistication is different because a lot more people have funded, uh, have started companies and therefore everybody has a neighbor or college buddy or a former colleague who is in a startup or has uh, joined a startup. And as a result, you know, people who we're meeting with just know a lot more about what it takes to start a company, which is great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alex. Unfortunately, we're running a little low on time, but we do want to give you a chance to maybe give the folks at home an opportunity to, to tell them where they need to go to learn a little bit more about some of the ventures you guys are doing, as well as where if they have an idea and they've already gotten started the ball rolling where they can get going and, and get you guys involved. Sure. So uh, our website is a very original URL. It's ridge.vc. And we highlight the entrepreneurs on the website um, who we have proudly backed. Um, we're excited that it's a diverse group uh, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, their heritage. We have first about a third of our portfolio are immigrants to the U.S. And we have founders whose both of whose parents are direct descendants for the Mayflower. Um, so it's a it's a pretty broad uh, uh, group. Uh, we highlight companies like Braze and Discord, uh, Fastly, which are the recent investments, some old investments like F5 Networks uh, that I'm sure folks are familiar with. Um, you know, companies like MindMeld, um, which was a pioneer in conversational AI that we funded, you know, eight years ago before people knew how to spell AI. Um, so um, it it's mostly the entrepreneurs and the companies that we have funded, but that will give people a very good perspective on what it is that we like to do. Thanks so much, Alex. Well, folks, you've done it again. You've sat through another hour of the best dang enterprise podcast in the universe, according to nine out of 10 security monitoring policies. But I want to make sure I thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to my co-hosts in crime, starting with our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin. Curtis, you're, uh, now that you're busy with all these things, what else, where else can people find all of your work, what you're posting, where you're going, what you're doing? Well, as always, people can find my writing at Dark Reading, particularly The Edge at Dark Reading. Had a piece up there this week. I spent a little bit of time at Gartner, the Gartner Symposium, their big conference uh, every year, and I uh, did one piece off that, got another one coming, and then 
This next week, I will be over at the big ISC Squared Conference, uh, the the Congress uh, for Information Security, and uh, we'll be reporting from there. So lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, look for me at uh, Dark Reading. Follow me on Twitter at KG4GWA, and I'll tell you all about the pieces that are coming up. Thanks, Kurt. We also have to thank our geek in paradise, our very own Mr. Brian Chi Chibert. Where can the folks at home find you, all of your work, and even ways to give you some show ideas? Well, on Twitter, I'm ADVNETLAB, Advanced Net Lab, or Chibert at twit.tv. But better yet, why don't you hit twiet at twit.tv, and that hits all the hosts. Now, I want to say this was a show that was a little different. This is not. Um, what we've been doing, but we've had some questions on how the heck do we grow um, and so forth. So when the uh, PR people toss the pitch at me, I go, well, why not? This sounds good. Maybe our viewers have that next great idea to go and make a billion dollars. So, yes, I heard you in the chat room. I will go and try and push a little harder on uh, some big Linux apps. One of the hot topics right now is automation, uh, especially for containers and things like that. So we will go and take a good hard look. I will go try and find a good automation speaker and we'll see if we can get that on a show, future show. Uh, keep those show ideas coming. Lots and lots of these shows are driven by you, the viewer. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your ideas. If you think I suck, please tell me that too. I've got fairly thick skin. <laughs> and you know what? It's all good. Um, and yes, Padre says hello. Thanks, Jibber. Well, we also have to thank you as well. You're the person who drops in each and every week to watch and to listen to our show to get your enterprise goodness. We want to make it easy for you to watch and listen and catch up on your enterprise news. So go to our show page right now, twit.tv slash twiet. There you'll have all the amazing back episodes plus all the show notes, information about our co-hosts and our guests, as well as all the stories we do during the show. But more importantly, next to those videos there, you actually get those helpful download and subscribe links. to Now, if you want to support our show each and every week, get your audio version, video version, or HD video version of your choice. Listen on any one of your devices or any one of your favorite podcast applications. After you've subscribed, share the show with your friends, your family, your coworkers, because we love doing this show. And if you subscribe, we can keep doing it. Also, remember, we do this show live each and every week at 1.30 p.m. Pacific time on Fridays. You can check it out at live.twit.tv. There you can see what's going on during the show, what's behind the scenes, everything. All the stream will be on the stream live uh, throughout the day, throughout that time. Now, if you want to jump in and watch live, you might as well jump into the chat room as well. We have a great chat room. It's an IRC channel, irc.twit.tv. There you can find all the great characters that we have in there each and every week. They can provide really some really great topics and questions throughout the show so go ahead and jump in there as well now if you can't jump in live but you still want to join the twit community and you want you actually want to be part of the discussion we actually have some really great discussions out there on our new forum as well twit.community if you check that out all of our hosts including the twiet riot posts out there and they actually come out and join the great discussion about technology, pretty much just about everything. So please come out and join us there as well. Also, don't forget, you can follow me at twitter.com slash LouMM. You get to see what I do during my normal work week at Microsoft. Plus, you can also check out dev.office.com where you get, we actually post all the latest, greatest ways 
to customize Office and make it more productive for you and your organization. I also want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to Leo and Lisa. They continue to support us each and every week. We couldn't do this week at Enterprise Tech without them. So thank you so, so much for all their support. Also, we have to thank all the engineers at Twit. And of course, we have to thank our tireless producer as well. Mr. Brian Chichibur is not only our co-host, but he's also our producer. He does all the bookings, the plannings for the show, and we really just couldn't do the show without him. So thank you so much, Chibert, for all your help and your assistance over the years. Of course, before we sign out, we have to thank our TD for today. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. We have to continue the tradition, though. Do you uh, maybe could tell us, the folks at home, what uh, what kind of major topics or themes you had about the show? Well, I remember don't go to Barnes & Noble's to because there's only two books on venture capital. But there's a cool thing called the web, and there's hundreds of hours. <laughs> okay. I would say pretty close. I'd say pretty close. I'd say the major theme is, you know, AI, AI and automation. But you were really close, so um, maybe next time. Maybe that was a great time. show too, guys. Good job. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Well, until next time, I'm Louis Moresca, just reminding you, if you want to know what's going on in the enterprise, just keep twiddling.